Good morning. Turn to your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 1. It's true that there is power in the finished work of Jesus, and Paul knows that, and that's why he's so adamant about making sure that the gospel is not distorted among the Galatians, as we've talked about. While you turn to Galatians 1, I'll read from Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. Many of you know what I mean when I say fear of man, but for a few of you who might not know what I'm talking about when I say the fear of man, the fear of man, simply put, is fearing man more than God. It's when you're more concerned about what man thinks about you or what, than what God thinks. And Proverbs says that the fear of man is a snare. A snare is a lure. It's a trap. Fishermen use snares. Hunters use snare to catch something. And when you fear man more than God, you're guaranteed to be caught up in a trap. It's Satan's trap, and you'll find yourself caught up in it. And many of you have experienced this. Now, I don't mean to say that being concerned about what others think is the same thing as fear of man. It could be, but it's not always. All of you had a level of concern about what you looked like when you came here this morning, or at least most of you, and you wanted to make sure that you looked presentable, that your hair wasn't sticking straight up when you, from when you got out of bed, and assuming that that is at a healthy level and it's not consuming your life and most of your thoughts and your time, that's not what I'm talking about. Talking simply, try, try to make it simple, fear of man is when you have two options, one that's going to please God and one that's going to please man. One that's going to please God is right and good, the one that's going to please man is not. And when you give more weight to the opinion of man and it influences you to do the wrong thing, that's fearing man. Or maybe you do the right option, but you do it in such a way that kind of hides it so others don't see you because you're afraid of what others might think of you. That is also fearing man. Every Christian deals with this. No matter how godly you are, you've dealt with this. Of course, more mature Christians, they tend to be less affected by this now because they've seen the benefit of honoring Christ above themselves and above others. But every Christian has dealt with this in various ways throughout their life, and if our culture continues to grow hostile to Christ, it will be an even greater temptation for us as we go forward. <clears throat> but nevertheless, Christians have always dealt with this, even back when Jesus was here. And that's why Jesus told his followers in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you, whom you to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now fearing God may be a new concept or sounds strange to a few of you who are younger or maybe who aren't Christians. And I don't have time to talk about it in depth. But Quickly, for this context, if you've ever had a great boss, doesn't matter how great he was, how wonderful he was, you've had a healthy fear of not letting him down. And you've had something to do that you needed to get done. 
and you didn't want to let him down. And you had this fear. Maybe the same thing with your parents. You could have the most amazing parent in the world, but you have a healthy fear of not letting them down, doing a good job because you care about their opinion. In the same way, you have a concern about what God thinks. Even though Jesus is the most loving person, you still have a fear of him. We should still have a fear of his discipline. So Jesus says, don't fear what people could do to you. The worst that they could do is kill your body. And when people are listening to that, they're thinking, that sounds pretty bad. Jesus, I don't want somebody to kill my body. But then he says, fear God, who can not just kill your body, but then he has the authority to cast you into hell. So this is the fear of man. And for so many many Christians, it consumes their lives. It becomes a snare to you. Instead of following Christ and doing what he desires you to do, you do what other people want you to do, and you get trapped by it. You want other people to think highly of you, so you purchase a car or a house that you can't afford, so when people come over to your house or they see you driving your car, they think that you're really something. But you put your family into debt, and it's a snare. Or you don't speak up. When you know that you should have, because you're afraid of other people thinking poorly of you or thinking you're weird, a teen feels pressure from his friends to act in an ungodly way because he's more worried about what his friends are going to think of him if he, if he doesn't go along with them than what God's going to think of him if he does go along. Well, Paul, he is not fearing man when he is writing this letter, as we'll see. He is more concerned about pleasing God and being a servant to Christ than he is about pleasing man. And that will be clear to us. Paul, if you remember, he's writing to the Galatians because even though he's come and he's taught them the gospel and they believe, some men have come in and they've told them, yeah, Jesus is fine, but you also need the law. Yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. We've talked about that. If you remember Esteban's last sermon, Paul was beginning to rebuke the Galatians for deserting the gospel that Paul had labored to teach them. And they had begun to believe the men who were coming in and telling them that Paul's gospel was insufficient or Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Spiritually, they were in serious danger because if we compromise on the gospel, we lose everything. And so he rebukes. He begins his rebuke in verse 6 through 9. We'll be focusing mainly on 10 today, but I want to start back in verse 6 of chapter 1. Follow along with me. I am astonished, Paul says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I... Now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Look in verse 10 again. Am I now seeking the approval of man or am I trying to please man? He's not really asking the question. He's implying the answer and how he's asking these questions. He's essentially saying, it should be obvious to you guys that I'm seeking to please God and not man. If you remember Esteban's sermon, he talked about, he kind of looked, we looked through Acts 13 through 15. And you'll remember that everywhere Paul was going in Galatia, when he went to preach, persecution was stirred up against him. His own people, the Jews, hate him. Anyone in this room who's been forsaken by their family knows how hard it is to be hated by your own people. Paul's life was difficult. It was not easy. His preaching costed him a lot. He wasn't getting rich off of this. He wasn't living a sweet, lavish life in an ivory tower. It was taking a toll on him. And his life would be a lot simpler and much happier, worldly speaking, if he would just keep his mouth shut. But Paul is not trying to please man, but rather serve God, and that's why he's writing this letter. He's traveling, he's preaching the gospel, at the, at the expense of potentially his life. Cruel treatment everywhere he goes, the hatred of many. So Paul's saying, surely you know that I am seeking the approval of God and not man. Otherwise, why would I go through all of this? Martin Luther, when he talks about this, he talks about Paul. He says, no man can say that Paul is seeking the favor of man and the praise of of men with his doctrine. He teaches that all men are naturally depraved. He condemns man's free will, his strength, wisdom, and righteousness. He says that we obtain grace by the free mercy of God alone for Christ's sake. There is no preaching to please men. This sort of preaching procures, the, procures for us hatred and disfavor of the world, persecutions, excommunications, murders, and curses. Essentially, Luther's saying, you don't preach like this to make people happy. Preaching and teaching like this makes people mad at you. Because you're telling people that their wisdom, their righteousness, their goodness, their ability to follow the law, it's not good enough. In fact, you failed so much that there's no hope for you except that Jesus would save you. And people don't like to be told that. If Paul was seeking to please man, he's doing a lousy job because he's not praising them and he's not making them feel good. And even in this letter, this letter is a stern rebuke from a spiritual father. Ever have your father raised his voice at you? I know some of you think that a godly man never raises his voice. That's not true. A godly man may raise his voice. It should be done with self-control. No! And the kid's going to touch the outlet, right? When the mom sees her kid running to the street. Ross, come back. That's not how it goes, right? Why? Because the kid's in danger. And the parent loves their kid. How Paul is talking here is a shock to their system. 
because they're playing with dynamite. Spiritually speaking, they're on the verge of making a complete mess of their faith. And so Paul is not trying to please man, because if he was, he wouldn't talk like this. He wouldn't start saying, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. In chapter 3, he starts off by saying, oh foolish Galatians, if you're trying to make someone feel good, you wouldn't speak like that. That was your main goal, and you were just trying to please them. Paul tells them in the verse before this one that if anybody's teaching a gospel contrary to the one that I'm teaching, let him be accursed. Now, we don't like to talk that way today because it sounds unloving, but church, you must have a space for that tone and that language in your heart. Everything Paul is saying, every word, his attitude, his tone, all of it is pleasing to Christ. Do you have a space for speech like that? Are you tempted to always think that a sermon should make you feel good? Or that a sermon that feels a little too harsh to your senses, it must be, love, it must be wrong and it must be without love? that's you, let me exhort you. You must make room for this type of tone and language to be Christian. The Galatians at this present time need to be talked like this, and you as well, at times, need to be talked in a similar fashion, and you must make room in your heart for this speech and this tone to actually be loving. It's not unloving or for a mom or dad to raise their voice at the appropriate time, and neither is it for a preacher or for Paul. And I know many of you in this church who have been here for a long time, you've grown in that. I know most of you here, and I know many of you came and you thought, well, Josh seems a little mean. And then you found out, no, Josh actually, he does love me. Actually, maybe he's not mean. No, he isn't mean. He does love me. I've just never had a father who actually cared for me like that. Right? If you think you should always leave church warm and fuzzy, that's not true. I hope you always know that God loves you. Paul's goal in Galatians isn't to be mean just because he thinks it's fun to be a jerk, but he's sounding the alarm, and he's sounding it loudly because he loves them. Because he knows that if they lose the gospel, they lose everything, and there's no hope. They won't know the love of God if they believe a false gospel. And so he's fighting for the Galatians at great cost to himself because he loves them. And he continues, he says, Or am I trying to please man? Many pastors today try to please men. Many pastors today try to please men. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul says to Timothy, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This is what many churches do. 
Many churches in our very city, most big churches in our day are big because they do this. Not all. So you can't just look at every big church and say, well, they must be itching ears. And there are plenty of small churches who do the exact same thing. But we live in a day when men do not want to hear sound doctrine. They do not want to be called to repent of their sins. They just want to hear about how God loves them, but not how God wants to change them. And be careful that you, do not be, that you don't become duped or tricked by such men. Now, when I give that warning, I think most of you hear me say, don't be tricked by men like that. And you think, yeah, that, I won't be tricked by that. I know, I shouldn't listen to Joel Osteen, or T.D. Jakes, or that prosperity guy on TV. Not going to be tricked by him. But if that's how you think, you've already lost, okay? <clears throat> Let me explain that. Any sin that you see in Scripture, any warning that you see in Scripture, you should be humble enough to know that you could be tempted to do such things. So why I tell married people, don't you ever assume that you won't commit adultery. If you're in my small group, you've definitely heard that. Lots of times people are shocked by that. I would never do that. I'm not tempted like that. I love my husband. Man thinks, never been tempted to do that. Don't look at anything. My eyes are only for my wife. That's not really a temptation I need to worry about. Any humble person who reads their Bible sees the godliest of men make mistakes. David commits adultery and murder, and yet he was incredibly godly before and after. Solomon, the wisest man ever to live. I can't tell you how much wiser he is than anybody in this room. And yet he still makes a mess of his life. Moses sins. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. Peter forsakes Jesus. And then on top of that, we'll see later in Galatians that he still is making mistakes. Big ones. Are you wiser than Solomon? Are you better than Moses? Do you love Jesus more than Peter? Uh, what about David? you godlier than him, and yet David failed in this way too. And you should be concerned and on guard about every warning from Scripture, knowing that you're not above it. And so when I warn you to not be tricked by men who preach to please you, you should seriously concern yourself with that warning and not think, I'm not going to listen to Joel Osteen. I already know he's, he's not serious. Satan likes to have Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and those guys because if that's all you think about first, or 2 Timothy 4.3 and that's all Paul's talking about, well, then you'll get tricked by actual men who are tickling ears. For you and for Christians, there's many more dangerous men than those. Yes, Jesus, but also this. And so what does that look like today? Well, if a preacher is only making you feel good, he's probably tickling your ears. If a preacher never rebukes you ever, 
Or if he does, it's always very, very gentle. Very soft. He's probably preaching to please men. If the things that he corrects you about are things that everybody is on board with, and it's not hard for you to swallow ever, probably preaching to please men. If you end up in a church where the pastor has no idea who you are, none of the elders know who you are, and you can exist in that church for forever without anybody ever getting to know you, ever getting into your life, well, there's a good chance that that church is set up just to try to please men. Not every big church is that way. But I remember listening to a pastor, and uh, his church had grown really fast in a bigger city. And I think it was probably, I don't know, 1,200 people, but it had grown there in like, I don't know, nine years from 50. It was a big church now. And I remember listening to him, and he was totally overwhelmed. He was totally overwhelmed because he had no idea how to care for all these people. But he didn't know where to send them either. They didn't have enough people, enough elders, enough godly people to care for all the needs in their church. He's literally crying in front of us because he felt like he doesn't know what to do. But that's not the norm for big churches. Big church pastors are often happy all the time. They get tons of vacation time, never really feel weighed down by the burden of ministry because they're not really doing ministry. The pastor's giving a weekly pep talk, so he needs to speak for 30 minutes, and that's really his only job. Not shepherding anyone, doesn't know much what's going on in people's lives. If a pastor is always happy on social media, everything is awesome about their church. This event is the, was the most incredible thing. Today's service was the best service ever. Like, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the pastor is always happy 24-7? Are you always happy? Is life always great? But yet, pastors pretend like everything is always awesome. It's usually a trick. If you've been here for a while and you've become a member, I believe most of all of you would know what it is to have a pastor care for you who isn't trying to please men. Most of you, most of us have been personally corrected or rebuked by Josh. Most of you, you know, for most of you it probably wasn't as strong, maybe. For some of you it has been, certainly. That's what Paul is doing to the Galatians, but... He's helped you see your sins, and he's led you to better water. And I know Esteban and I have done the same, and we're far from perfect, and my point is not to say that we're awesome, but a pastor who desires to please men, he doesn't get involved in people's lives. Okay? A real shepherd gets close to the sheep, and he may sometimes ask you uncomfortable questions because he really wants to know what's going on. Fake pastors don't do that. Because then people will actually want help and they'll actually have to do work. The pastor is always flattering you. He's tickling your ears. He's insincere. Keep your eyes open. 
Many of you who are younger here, you won't stay in Bloomington for your whole life. Lots of you. You come here for school. Or God will take you somewhere else. So when you look for a new church, these are the things. Write these down. These are the things you should look for. Does my pastor, does this pastor at this church, does he want to know me? Does he have any desire to know me? Does this pastor ever correct me or challenge me? Or does he only say nice things to me? Does he ever risk any saying something that that might make me upset or might offend me because he's more concerned that I please God than that I like him? Does he want everyone in the world to like him and his church? Of course, we should do our best to live at peace with everybody. Paul says that. But you will not be able to live at peace with everyone. And a good pastor is okay with that reality. A fake pastor tries to make everybody like him, Christian and non-Christian. Does that pastor ever fight wolves? You won't see every fight in the church that a pastor fights for his sheep. But if he never fights any wolves, it's because he doesn't want to. Because he doesn't want to make people upset at him and because he's pleasing men. Paul is not guilty of these charges. He's living to please God and he's writing to please God and anybody who knew Paul would know that they could not seriously charge him with seeking the approval of men. Paul is risking a lot to speak boldly this way. He goes on, he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul used to serve men, and he used to seek their approval. He was advancing in Judaism much faster than most people his age. And the Jews knew him. They would have been proud of him. Now they despised him. If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Listen, you can please God or you can please man, but you can't please both. Calvin says, those who resolve to serve Christ faithfully must have boldness to despise the favor of men. Paul made a statement about this, about his own ministry. And as we'll, as we'll continue to see as we go through Galatians, Paul is saying these things because he's giving a defense of himself for the sake of his message. He's basically saying, look, me telling you this, it brings me no earthly gain. It makes my life harder, but I'm a servant of Christ, so I say this to you. So let me apply it to your life. You cannot please God and you cannot please man. can't do both. Youth, we talked about this on Wednesday. Remember, as you continue to grow up, you can please God, you can please man. Younger ones, got to choose. Am I going to make God happy? Am I going to make everybody else happy? When you're in the workplace, you will times be asked to do things that you shouldn't do. Will you please your boss? Will you please God? College students, in classes, when you get a job, 
You're going to deal with things in our culture. You have to figure out how you're going to please, either please God, please man. <coughs> Some of you will lose your jobs because you choose to please God. And your reward will be good and great in heaven. It's getting more and more common for classes and colleges and schools to ask people to put their pronouns in their email address. You have to decide, what do I do with that? I was talking to a man yesterday. I assume he was a non-Christian. He was telling me that his daughter, who has a girlfriend, but she called him, the daughter called him this week, told him that her girlfriend is now her boyfriend. and goes by Hayden now. And what do you do with that? Many of you have family members caught up in this stuff, and you're trying to figure out, how do I please God? And at times, it makes your family upset, as many of you have known. And they will always tell you you're being unloving. And you will always struggle in your mind with, am I being unloving? And that's why it's good to have a church and have pastors and elders who can help you think through this stuff so you're not trying to have to worry about it all by yourself. People will ask you, because you're a Christian, what do you think about homosexuality? And how you answer that as a person who fears man versus a person who fears God is very different. Well, I mean... The Bible says it's not man's, it's not best for man. It's not God's best for you. But we still love everyone. And, and if they're not hurting anyone, and, and if, especially if they're not a Christian, you know, then it's, it's we love the sinner, we hate the sin. I've heard Christians answer this question in this way. My cousin asked me about a decade ago what I thought about this, and I answered in a similar way. Or you can answer, well, if you really want to know what I think about homosexuality, I think what Christians have always thought and what the Bible says about it. The Bible calls it a sin, says it's a sin, and if you'd, lo if you'd let me, I'd love to open my Bible and show you what it actually says. But I'd also love to tell you how God can forgive a sinner from his sin. I'm not saying that's the best way to answer it or that's how you have to answer it. But you can see the difference between the man who fears God and the man who fears man. You know this difference. Some of you right now are squirming because I'm talking about transgender stuff and I'm talking about homosexuality and that makes you uncomfortable. And that's probably a good thing because hopefully it'll show you 
even in church, when you're around Christians, like, you fear man. You fear what the person next to you is thinking. More than caring about what God says. I've already mentioned that you can fear men by making foolish financial decisions. You won't love others, you won't serve others because you're afraid to receive criticism or they won't like you or they won't like your cooking so I'm just never going to have them over for dinner because they might not like it. You don't share the gospel with a family member or friend because you, you just don't want to look weird. You kind of talked to them eight years ago a little bit and it didn't go that great. So they kind of know where you stand. Just let it go. I could go on about the ways that we fear men, but let me tell you one of the ways I think Christians fear men the most. I think one of the ways we fear men the most is our lack of confession of sin. We so badly want other Christians to think that we're godly and that we're better Christians than we actually are and so many Christians don't ever really confess sin to anyone else. Maybe sometimes their spouse, they sell a few things, but might be just complaining about others, a way to gossip. Sure, maybe you go to a small group and the guys and the girls split up and you kind of talk a little bit and you ask for some general help about your marriage and just say, you know, I wanted to be a godlier husband, can you pray for me? But do you ever say, yeah, I yelled at my kids because I was frustrated with them. I looked at this because I shouldn't have. I'm actually, I'm really mad and bitter at my husband. And my, I find myself being cold to him on purpose so I can make him feel bad and guilty. I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't really touched it in a year. I haven't been faithfully tithing. I've been actually really greedy with my money. Sure, you confess some things at Bible study. And, and listen, not every sin needs to be confessed to a whole group of people. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's better, especially for bigger sins, that the group stays smaller. But have you ever conf really Confess your sins. Have you ever confessed the thing that makes you feel guiltiest to anybody? Or do you keep some of those sins, those bigger ones, to yourself because you fear what other people are going to think about you or what it might cost you? I know it's no fun to talk about your sin. It's messy. It makes you feel guilty. It feels like a heavy burden. But I am arguing that if you do confess your sin, though it may make your life harder for a season, it's always better and it's always worth it in the end. I've never confessed my sin and regretted doing so. I think pretty much any godly Christian will tell you that. 
I've never confessed sin, never confessed something to my wife or to my pastor or to my small group and thought, oh, I would have been better if I just didn't tell anybody about that. I'm having the youth group memorize Psalm 32 because some of you are living your lives stuck in your sin. And Psalm 32, 3 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Surely most of you know this and have experienced this in your life where you've kept your sin in, and this is how you felt. It's awful. Some of you have been holding sin in for so long, it's kind of, you just kind of gotten used to this. It doesn't have to be that way. Look what David says. David says, when you confess your sins to the Lord, he says, I acknowledge my sin. This is still Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And some of you need to confess your sins to the Lord. Maybe you need to do it for the first time. Maybe you're not a Christian, but your sin's been destroying you. But Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and he will forgive you freely. Confess your sins to him. Ask for your help. Believe on the Lord. And I'll also encourage you to confess it to others as well. You don't need to tell everyone, but James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some of you have been dealing with the same sins for years because you don't ask anybody to pray for you and so you never get the help that you need. So confess your sins to God. Confess it to some godly people so that they can pray for you and you can receive help from God to heal you. I don't know how each one of you will be tempted or are tempted to fear men, but church, you can serve Christ or you can serve man. Those are your options. One is a snare, one drains you, and one gives you life. So which will you choose? Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the many times that we don't want to confess our sins to you or to others that we just kind of want to move on. Forgive us for our fearing you, or excuse me, for fearing man instead of fearing you, for being more concerned about what others are going to think about us instead of what you will think about us or how we can please you. Father, we need help in this. especially for many who have been caught up in fearing man for a long time. It's terrifying to stop doing that and to fear you instead. It's terrifying to confess sin. But God, you promise that it's always good for us. 
I pray that you'd help us as we go forward from this place. Help us remember that you freely forgive those who repent. You love to forgive us from our sins. Our deepest, our darkest, our small ones. You love to forgive your people of their sins. Help us believe that and trust that and confess them to you. Help us live to please you and not man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.